Thanks so much for watching Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta. And today we are talking with Alina Nadenova, who is the CEO and founder of Febris. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Lovely to be with you. I love this whole idea because you are currently located in England. You started Febris in England in 2018 but saw a need in the United States. And in our pre-interview, I think one of the things that was most fascinating is I asked you the difference between working in the UK and working in the US. And you said, fundamentally, the, the human aspects are the same. So why don't you tell us what has that been like and what have you found as you've begun your work here earlier this year? Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, I, it's one of the most fascinating things uh, about what we do, really. I've throughout my career, I've had the opportunity to work with very different health systems. So during my academic years, I worked in India with community healthcare workers um, and focusing on community delivery of healthcare. Um, with Febris, over the last three years, we've been working in the UK with the national health system. And about eight months ago, uh, we expanded into the US working with rural healthcare providers at the moment. And on the surface, it sounds like these are very different health systems, very different challenges. Why would we even try to connect the dots between them? Uh, but my experience has been the fundamental human challenges of accessing healthcare um, are transferable across geographies. We all face the same problems when it comes to the lack of doctors and the workforce crisis, particularly at the back of the pandemic that everyone is experiencing which particularly for the most vulnerable patients means that often they can't access healthcare when they need it and at a price that they can afford. Um, so even though the complexities of the health systems might be different, the challenges of navigating the payer provider divide might be different, the incentive mechanisms might be different. When it comes to the patients, they're all suffering from the same problem um, and they all need similar types of solutions to, to help them access the healthcare that they need. And that's where Febris comes in because you created yep. this medical kit that it, it's such a great idea because it goes, you can take these medical kits, a community health worker can take them into, you know, rural areas or other places in need and get people sensors and other types of medical information that they might not be able to get or detect without going to a doctor, which is sometimes un, unrealistic at that certain point. And so I, when I was learning about this, I thought about my daughter trying to understand how this works just for the viewer. My daughter came home from the NICU seven years ago and had a heart monitor. And so that had data on it. It was obviously offline, didn't require Wi-Fi or anything like that. And it would alert us if she had a heart episode. And then once a month, somebody from the hospital would come or the home medical company would come, download that information, send it to the neonatologist who would then report back any findings. But it gave you an immediate alert. And so that's what the Febris kit is designed to do. You have this digital data that they, the community health worker can go into these homes, get an immediate readout without needing to be connected to Wi-Fi, can alert them, okay, blood pressure is high. Maybe we need to talk to the doctor about adjusting medication. Or it can say, whoa, this blood pressure is really, really high. You need to go to the hospital right now. So it does provide immediate uh, feedback for the next steps needed and then allows them to share that with the doctor and get, you know, advanced medical advice. So it's a really neat way. And you were inspired by working with children with pneumonia. You don't treat children with Febris, but tell us how that informed this journey. Yeah, it's been a, it's a, it's been a very interesting journey, actually. So I, 
I was working on childhood pneumonia when I was at the World Health Organization and the medical advice group there. And it was the first time I realized that this perfectly treatable disease is the number one killer of children under five. And a lot of this is because it's a relatively complex disease to diagnose. There isn't a single symptom that you can just measure and that would give you a diagnosis, uh, which means that if you don't have access to the doctor, that diagnosis might be very delayed, by which point um, the, the disease is quite severe, particularly in, in very young children that are very vulnerable. Um, so that set me on a journey of thinking about how can we take the precision that we already have, particularly in hospital settings, when you think about the many machines and the interpretation that goes with them that we already have in those settings, but bring it to community environments where disease originates and actually 99% of health and disease happens in those environments. How can we be more precise in identifying when things are going wrong so that people can have more informed recommendations on what level of escalation do I need to follow? Um, so my personal journey then took me on um, kind of doing a PhD at Oxford first, then figuring out how do we set up a business around this? Um, and now trying to figure out how do we make this accessible for people across different countries. Amazing. And uh, Lena, the, the common denominator there, again, is so resonant for all of us, which is no matter what uh, environment you've practiced in all throughout the world, you're finding there just is not enough doctors. And so, it, you know, it's, it strikes us as the burden of disease is really high and unfortunately growing. It's probably the reason why, why patients, unfortunately, have been, uh, you know, infant mortality and uh, maternal mortality and all these things that we hear about. It's probably already always been so high because we've never really been able to get access to medical care. So I find your device fascinating, not only because it's got the mobile uh, technology and it's got the interface, but you're building the artificial intelligence that essentially allows us to do this work without, you know, becoming reliant on doctors. Uh, is that a piece you can maybe tease out a little bit more for us? In, in, you know, I mean, certainly that seems to be your, your life's work, but how does the artificial intelligence work? How good is it? Uh, how good are some of the recommendations it's delivering? And, and what are the doctors saying about it? You know, are they accepting the uh, outputs that are coming off of this? Yeah, thank you for that question. For me, the way I think about it is it's really about two things. One is how can we reduce the burden of data on clinicians? Data is a fascinating and powerful thing, but too much data for clinicians means a lot of time they don't have and a lot of clinicians we don't actually have. And the second question is how can we translate data into actionable insights so that we can more precisely target clinical time at what they should be focused on. Um, so what that means for our system is we focus on guiding the user through the capture of clinically reliable information, which is different to, let's say, the conventional remote patient monitoring approach where you would give someone a sensor, let's say you gave them a pulse oximeter, and you would just assume that whatever num number they sent you is reliable enough for a clinician to, to make sense of it. The reality is that generates a lot of noise and it generates a lot of clinical risk because they're not with the patient. They don't know whether they placed the sensor in the right place, whether they were agitated when they were taking the measurement or their hands were too cold, any number of things that might be happening that actually don't equate to the exact physiological parameter that was sent to the clinician. So what we focus on is how can we design AI that detects when that user error is happening 
and advises the user in real time on what they should do so that regardless of who the user is, including a community healthcare worker, let's say in rural settings, we can guarantee that the quality of the data they're capturing is as good as a clinician being there or a physician being there. And then the second question is, now that we have this clinically reliable informational data, how can we translate it into actionable insights for the clinician so that they don't have to constantly check through so many different data points um, and, and spend time that they don't honestly have? Um, so for our system, that means identifying different symptoms and then automating the combination of these symptoms, particularly through best clinical practice to highlight these are the patients that you should really focus on and this is the level of risk associated with them. Wow. Yeah, I love what you said because it's it ultimately is about the data and helping to make it manageable because there's no point in collecting more data and it's not good quality and you know unfortunately then winds up overwhelming the physicians. Um, so let's keep going with that, that train of thought then, Alina. What is the physician's response been? Do they trust the input that's coming in more? Uh, what's what's their initial feedback from this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the UK, we work with the national health system. Uh, we were very fortunate at the start of the pandemic to plug into the emergency response, particularly in uh, residential facilities for older adults, so elderly patients in the UK. Um, and over the last two and a half years, we've built that trust gradually and deployed across a number of other uh, different programs. Um, and as I mentioned about eight months ago, started expanding into the US, uh, where at the moment we are focused on rural healthcare. And across, of those, across all these different programs, uh, we, we fundamentally have two users whose trust we need to gain um, and who we incorporate into this uh, um, new way of delivering healthcare. So it's the, the community user who can be a community healthcare worker um, or a care, home care worker or a community nurse in different settings that are now operating on a higher level that they would typically do. And then at the other end, we have the clinician who is now receiving this information and making decisions at the back of it. Um, and what we've seen across all of these different models is a lot of benefit in terms of patient safety, because we have better information about what's happening to these patients rather than waiting until they're very, very severe and end up in hospital, uh, but also a lot of efficiency that's realized for the system. Um, and that might mean the clinician not getting constantly alerted because they don't have better information to make decisions at the back of, uh, but also for a lot of the populations that we work with, it means reducing hospitalizations. So by more proactively identifying when these things are happening, it means that they don't have to get as sick as they were getting before and end up in hospital unnecessarily. What have the results been like? You said it's helping reduce these hospitalizations for you know, some of these chronic conditions. So what have you seen over you know, the four or five years that you've been doing this? Yeah, so for these high-risk groups, we've seen 35% reduction in these avoidable hospitalizations, um, also 88% reduction in the unnecessary alarms for clinicians. Um, and fundamentally, across the board, uh, that's result resulted in 7 to 13x return on investment for the health system, which particularly if we're talking about, about value-based delivery of healthcare, uh, which is very topical across the globe and it's the way to to kind of scale our health systems uh, becomes very relevant because we can't find more clinicians we need to be far more efficient in the way we deploy our resources and if we can find these new models that maximize our resource in a way that's also better for patients 
um, then that's something we should be striving for. Yeah, it's interesting you're doing it here in the U.S. with community health workers also, which is a lot of actually innovative healthcare companies, primary care uh, transformation-oriented companies are also trying to do the same because they're realizing you can't, not only can you not do it with doctors, you can't do it with other clinicians, nurses, or nurse practitioners, or PAs. All of these are just become really scarce commodities, just not, never going to be enough and always very, very expensive. So it's really uh, intriguing that you're trying to do it with the community health worker model. At some point, you think this is going to ultimately move to just self-monitoring? I mean, if the system is smart enough and it's correcting user error anyway, community health worker, are they necessarily any more trained than the patient themselves? So do you think that that's ultimately where this is going, that you know, the high-risk patients will just have a device in their home, as maybe Stephanie was alluding to earlier with her experience? Yes. Um, yes, I think the answer is yes. But we need to be careful when we think about accommodating different patients. Mm -hmm. um, so for some of them, I actually mean that it would be their, their family members, if they're frail, don't have the digital capabilities, it's unreasonable to expect them to be self-caring. Um, for, for others, compliance might be a challenge. And this is a, a very big challenge, actually, for remote patient monitoring, in particular, when people are so sick, it's really difficult to find the incentive to be constantly ch checking on your condition. Mm -hmm. um, so I think what's important is really to accommodate that flexibility and bake that into our workforce models. Um, and granted, we can't really find more doctors and more nurses, but there are alternative work workforce models that we should be investing in so that the patients, they can take care of themselves and the intelligence of these devices uh, reaches that level can be um, kind of the majority of people, but there is a minority that will forever uh, rely on a human touch. And for those, we need to have these alternative workforce models. I'm really uh, blown away by all the all your life's work, actually, in Thank terms you. of uh, the, your PhD, your discovery, your working in the field. It just sounds uh, so intense for you to be able to come up with these insights. So, uh, and and then to put it together that. in a technology format, and and you know, I would just say, but as an aside, I'm actually also blown away that not only are you doing this with an NHS, but then you decide to enter into the U.S., which is such a massive regulatory, you know, hurdle. Uh, so hats off to you and your company for kind of uh, foring into these really difficult, uh, difficult territories. Uh, you'd mentioned that you can measure a number of parameters, uh, blood pressure, heart rate, uh, pulse oximetry. Uh, do you see ultimately some limitation in the kinds of things that can be measured? Uh, are you seeing a lot of innovation in uh, new devices, uh, new, new kind of adjuncts to the kits that are going to be able to help you get more parameters so that ultimately you can you know, now be monitoring more and more conditions and, and develop even greater sensitivity you know, for, for patients um, that, that, that don't have access that they may not currently be able to even you know, figure out what needs to be monitored. Any thoughts along those lines? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think there are a couple of dimensions of, of innovation and evolution that will continue to, to happen, uh, particularly on the sensor side. Um, so we ourselves are hardware agnostic. We work with, with existing sensors. What we focus on is building intelligence on top of those sensors. And that space is has a lot of potential, has a lot of growth uh, that can happen. Um, one example uh, that I can give is if you think about something like a conventional pulse oximeter, at the moment mostly used to extract oxygen and pulse rate from it, there is so much more information in that signal um, that can be used. 
Um, so we ourselves focus on extracting additional cardiac and respiratory biomarkers from that device. And the, the same applies for a number of other sensors. Um, another example would be the digital stethoscope, which at the moment entirely relies on a physician who is highly trained to listen to the sounds and try and make sense of them. There is a lot of automation that can happen in that space again, and we can bring a lot of that insight to community environments. Um, but the other trend that's definitely going to continue to evolve, and we're going to see more and more of, more of is really um, consolidating these sensors into what are currently different devices um, into more of a multimodal sensor um, that can be more easily applied to patients, doesn't have the same challenges in terms of multiple devices um, and the usability of, of those um, sensors will become better. Um, so I think across the board, we're gonna see development in accessibility, but also the, the intelligence in the insights that these can generate. I think it's fascinating that in so many of these conversations that we have, the themes always come back to something basic, you know, or going forward with technology, but back in, not in thinking, but I can't think of the right word, but, um, you know, getting back to like a heyday. So in so many of our conversations, we talk about how primary care used to be, you know, that was like your guy or your girl, that doctor was the, you know, a person, you might have them to dinner, like they were your people. And then it got away in the United States and kind of went down this road of, okay, I have to see the specialist, the specialist. And now we're coming back to the days of, no, 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 you need this primary care person. And so I think it's really fascinating that you're entering the market in the United States in that time when you are offering something that is so focused on that importance of primary care and prevention. What is it that, you know, makes you realize that that is so important and do you, what do you see when you come to America do you feel that excitement around getting back to building these relationships seeing people where they are and trying to prevent not diagnose something that's already in happening that may not need to this actually goes back to where we started the conversation of the fundamental human challenges that we face across the board uh, with healthcare because I find healthcare is probably the most personal experience that, that you have. Um, it's the most vulnerable that you ever feel, even if, if it's not you, if it's your loved one um, going through a challenging time. You, you, you really want to have that close relationship. You want to have that trust with the people or the system that can solve these problems. Um, so I, I see that across any geography. I saw the same thing in when I was working in urban slums in India, working alongside mothers that had three-year-old children and were trying to make uh, a decision on shall I travel for two hours to reach the hospital and relying on the community healthcare worker that they can only see in, in their locality. Um, it's the same when you look at the vulnerable older patients in the assisted living facilities uh, that we have in, in the UK. Um, and it's the very same thing uh, that I saw when I was um, kind of following some of the community healthcare workers that we work um, in West Virginia with, where these vulnerable patients need reassurance. They need human touch. We're not trying to replace that human touch at all. Quite the opposite. We're trying to enable the people that are seeing them on a regular basis to be that first line of support and to be that channel into the health system. It gives them the reassurance of, yes, we have the right information and you should be, this is the, the next logical step for you that we can support you on. Um, so 
across the globe, I see the same trend of exactly what you're saying. We, we are all craving that old model of the doctor coming to a house, figuratively speaking. It's unattainable within the, the doctor workforce that we have uh, anywhere in the world, but it is attainable through these augmented models that have alternative workforces, technology, and connect us virtually uh, with, with the health system. Um, so I, I find the shift is, is quite universal. Thank you so much for being here and sharing this. I loved hearing about the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. So fascinating. Thank you for sharing with us. Thank you all for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.